Chapters two and three of the Shepherd of the Hills. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Jomard. The Shepherd of the Hills by Harold Bell Wright. Chapter two, Sammy Lane. Preachin' Bill says it's a plumb shame there ain't more men in the world built like old man Matthews and that there boy of hisn. Men like them ought to be as common as the other kind, and would be too if folks cared half as much about breedin' folks as they do about raisin' hogs and horses. Mister Matthews was a giant, fully six feet four inches in height, with big bones, broad shoulders, and mighty muscles. At log rollings and chopping bees, in the field or at the mill, or in any of the games in which the backwoodsman tries his strength. No one had ever successfully contested his place as the strongest man in the hills. And still, throughout the countryside, the old folks tell with pride tales of the marvelous feats of strength performed in the days when old Matt was young. Of the son, young Matt, the people called him, it is enough to say that he seemed made of the same metal and cast in the same mold as the father, a mighty frame. Softened yet by young manhood's grace, a powerful neck and well-poised head with wavy red-brown hair, and blue eyes that had in them the calm of summer skies or the glint of battle steel. It was a countenance fearless and frank, but gentle and kind, and the eyes were honest eyes. Any one meeting the pair as they walked with the long swinging stride of the mountaineer up the steep mill road that gray afternoon. Would have turned for a second look. Such men are seldom seen. When they reached the big log house that looks down upon the hollow, the boy went at once with his axe to the woodpile, while the older man busied himself with the milking and other chores about the barn. Young Matt had not been chopping long when he heard coming up the hill the sound of a horse's feet on the old trail. The horse stopped at the house, and a voice that stirred the blood in the young man's veins called, "Howdy, Aunt Molly." Mrs. Matthews appeared in the doorway. By her frank countenance and kindly look, anyone would have known her at a glance as the boy's mother. "Land sakes, if it ain't Sammy Lane! How are you, honey?" "I'm all right," answered the voice. "I've come over to stop with you tonight. Dad's away again." Mandy Ford stayed with me last night, but she had to go home this evening. The big fellow at the woodpile drove his axe deeper into the log. It's about time you was a comin' over," replied the woman in the doorway. "I was a tellin' the men folks this mornin' that you hadn't been nigh the whole blessed week. Mister Matthews, loud, maybe you was sick." The other returned with a gay laugh. "I was never sick a minute in my life that anybody ever heard tell." I'm powerful hungry, though. You'd better put in another pan of cornbread. She turned her pony's head toward the barn. Seems like you are always hungry," laughed the older woman in return. "Well, just go on out to the barn, and the men will take your horse. Then come right in, and I'll mighty soon have something to fill you up." Operations at the woodpile suddenly ceased, and young Matt was first at the barnyard gate. Miss Sammy Lane was one of those rare young women whose appearance is not to be described. One can, of course, put it down that she was tall, beautifully tall, with the trimness of a young pine, deep bosomed, with limbs full rounded, 
fairly tingling with the life and strength of perfect womanhood. And it may be said that her face was a face to go with one through the years, and to live still in one's dreams when the sap of life is gone, and withered and old one sits shaking before the fire. A generous, loving mouth, red-lipped, full-arched, with the corners tucked in and perfect teeth between. A womanly chin and nose, with character enough to save them from being pretty. Hair dark, showing a touch of gold with umber in the shadows. A brow full-broad, set over brown eyes that had never been taught to hide behind their fringed veils, but looked always square out at you with a healthy look of good comradeship, a gleam of mirth, or a sudden, wide, questioning gaze that revealed depth of soul within. But what is the use? When all this is written, those who knew Sammy will say, "'Tis but a poor picture, for she is something more than all this." Uncle Ike, the postmaster at the Forks, did it much better when he said to preach and bill the night of the doin's at the Cove School. Bah thunders! That gal o' Jim Lane's just plumb fills the whole house. What? And when she comes a ridin' up to the office on that brown pony o' hern, I'll be dad burned if she don't pretty nigh fill the whole outdoors. Bah thunders! What? And the little shriveled up old hillsman who keeps the ferry removed his cob pipe long enough to reply with all the emphasis possible to his squeaky voice. She sure do, Ike, she sure do. I've often thought it didn't look just fair for God Almighty to make such a woman without every man to match her. It makes me feel plumb shamed of myself to stand round the same country with her. It sure do, Ike. Greeting the girl, the young man opened the gate for her to pass. I've been a-looking for you over, said Sammy, a teasing light in her eyes. Didn't you know that Mandy was stopping with me? She's been a-dying to see you. I'm mighty sorry, he replied, fastening the gate and coming to the pony's side. Why didn't you tell me before? I reckon she'll get over it all right, though, he added with a smile as he raised his arms to assist the girl to dismount. The teasing light vanished as the young woman placed her hands on the powerful shoulders of the giant and as she felt the play of the swelling muscles that swung her to the ground so easily, her face flushed with admiration. For the fraction of a minute she stood facing him, her hands still on his arms. Her lips parted as if to speak. Then she turned quickly away and without a word walked toward the house, while the boy, pretending to busy himself with the pony's bridle, watched her as she went. When the girl was gone, the big fellow led the horse away to the stable, where he crossed his arms upon the saddle and hid his face from the light. Mr. Matthews, coming quietly to the door a few minutes later, saw the boy standing there, and the rugged face of the big mountaineer softened at the sight. Quietly, he withdrew to the other side of the barn, to return later when the saddle and bridle had been removed, and the young man stood stroking the pony, as the little horse munched his generous feed of corn. The elder man laid his hand on the broad shoulder of the lad so like him, and looked full into the clear eyes. "'Is it all right, son?' he asked gruffly, and the boy answered as he returned his father's look. "'It's all right, Dad.' "'Then let's go to the house. Mother called supper some time ago.' Just as the little company were seating themselves at the table, the dog in the yard barked loudly. Young Matt went to the door. The stranger whom Jed had met on the old trail stood at the gate.
Chapter Three, The Voice from Out the Mists. While young Matt was gone to the corral in the valley to see that the sheep were safely folded for the night, and the two women were busy in the house with their after-supper work, Mister Matthews and his guest sat on the front porch. My name is Howitt, Daniel Howitt, the man said in answer to the host's question. But as he spoke, there was in his manner a touch of embarrassment, and he continued quickly as if to prevent further question. You have two remarkable children, sir. That boy is the finest specimen of manhood I have ever seen, and the girl is remarkable, remarkable, sir. You will pardon me, I am sure, but I am an enthusiastic lover of my kind, and I certainly have never seen such a pair. The grim face of the elder Matthews showed both pleasure and amusement. You're mistaken, Mister. The boy's mine, all right, and he's all that you say, and more, I reckon. I doubt if there's a man in the hills can match him today, not excepting Wash Gibbs, and he's a mighty good boy too. But the girl is a daughter of a neighbor, and no kin at all. Indeed, exclaimed the other. You have only one child then. The amused smile left the face of the old mountaineer as he answered slowly. There was six boys, sir. This one Grant is the youngest. The others lie over there. He pointed with his pipe to where a clump of pines, not far from the house, showed dark and tall against the last red glow in the sky. The stranger glanced at the big man's face in quick sympathy. I had only two. A boy and a girl," he said softly. "The girl and her mother have been gone these twenty years. The boy grew to be a man, and now he has left me." The deep voice faltered. "Pardon me, sir, for speaking of this, but my lad was so like your boy there. He was all I had, and now, now I am very lonely, sir." There is a bond of fellowship in sorrow that knows no conventionalities. As the two men sat in the hush of the coming night, their faces turned toward the somber group of trees. They felt strongly drawn to one another. The mountaineer's companion spoke again, half to himself. I wish that my dear ones had a resting place like that. In the crowded city cemetery, the ground is always shaken by the tramping of funeral processions. He buried his face in his hands. For some time, the stranger sat thus, while his host spoke no word. Then, lifting his head, the man looked away over the ridges, just touched with the lingering light, and the valley below wrapped in the shadowy mists. I came away from it all because they said I must. And because I was hungry for this, he waved his hand toward the glowing sky and the forest-clad hills. This is good for me. It somehow seems to help me know how big God is. One could find peace here. Surely, sir, one could find it here—peace and strength. The mountaineer puffed hard at his pipe for a while, then said gruffly. Seems that way, Mister, to them that don't know. But many's the time I've wished to God I'd never seen these heroes' arcs. I used to feel like you do 
but I can't no more. They mind me now of him that blackened my life. He used to take on powerful about the beauty of the country, and all the time he was a-turnin' it into a hell for them that had to stay here after he was gone. As he spoke, anger and hatred grew dark in the giant's face, and the stranger saw the big hands clench and the huge frame grow tense with passion. Then, as if striving to be not ungracious, the woodsman said in a somewhat softer tone, you can't see much of it this evening, though, count the mists. It'll fare up by morning, I reckon. You can see a long way from here of a clear day, mister. Yes, indeed, replied Mr. Howitt, in an odd tone. One could see far from here, I am sure. We who live in the cities see but a little farther than across the street. We spend our days looking at the work of our own and our neighbor's hands. Small wonder our lives have so little of God in them when we come in touch with so little that God has made. "'You live in the city, then, when you are at home?' asked Mr. Matthews, looking curiously at his guest. "'I did, when I had a home. I cannot say that I live anywhere now.' Old Matt leaned forward in his chair as if to speak again, then paused. Someone was coming up the hill— and soon they distinguished the stalwart form of the sun. Sammy, coming from the house with an empty bucket, met the young man at the gate, and the two went toward the spring together. In silence the men on the porch watched the moon as she slowly pushed her way up through the leafy screen on the mountain wall. Higher and higher she climbed until her rays fell into the valley below, and the drifting mists from ridge to ridge became a sea of ghostly light. It was a weird scene, almost supernatural in its beauty. Then from down at the spring a young girl's laugh rose clearly, and the big mountaineer said in a low tone, "'Mr. Howitt, you've got education. It's easy to see that. I've always wanted to ask somebody like you. Do you believe in hants? Do you reckon folks ever come back once they're dead and gone?' The man from the city saw that his big host was terribly in earnest, and answered quietly, "'No, I do not believe in such things, Mr. Matthews. But if it should be true, I do not see why we should fear the dead.' The other shook his head. "'I don't know. I don't know, sir. I always said I didn't believe, but some things is mighty queer.' He seemed to be shaping his thought for further speech, when again the girl's laugh rang clear along the mountainside. The young people were returning from the spring. The mountaineer relighted his pipe, while young Matt and Sammy seated themselves on the step, and Mrs. Matthews, coming from the house, joined the group. "'We've just naturally got to find somebody to stay with them sheep, Dad,' said the son. "'There ain't nobody there to-night.' and as near as I can make out, there's three ewes and their lambs missing. There ain't a bit of use in us trying to depend on Pete. I'll ride over on Bear Creek tomorrow and see if I can get that fellow Buck told us about, returned the father. You find it hard to get help on the ranch? inquired the stranger. Yes, sir, we do, answered old Matt. We had a good enough man till about a month ago. Since then we've been getting along the best we could. 
but with some a-stayin' out on the range and not comin' in, and the wolves a-gettin' into the corral at night, we'll lose mighty nigh all the profits this year. The worst of it is, there ain't much show to get a man, unless that one over on Bear Creek will come. I reckon, though, he'll be like the rest. He sat staring gloomily into the night. Is the work so difficult? Mr. Howitt asked. Difficult, no. There ain't nothing to do but tendin' to the sheep. The man has to stay at the ranch of nights, though. Mr. Howitt was wondering what staying at the ranch nights could have to do with the difficulty, when up from the valley below, from out the darkness and the mists, came a strange sound, a sound as if someone were singing a song without words. So wild and weird was the melody, so passionately sweet the voice, it seemed impossible that the music should come from human lips. It was more as though some genie of the forest-clad hills wandered through the mists, singing as he went with the joy of his possessions. Mrs. Matthews came close to her husband's side and placed her hand upon his shoulder as he half rose from his chair, his pipe fallen to the floor. Young Matt rose to his feet and moved closer to the girl, who was also standing. The stranger alone kept his seat, and he noted the agitation of the others in wonder. For some moments the sound continued, now soft and low, with the sweet sadness of the wind in the pines. Then clear and ringing, it echoed and re-echoed along the mountain, now pleading as though a soul in darkness prayed a gleam of light, again rising, swelling exultingly, as in glad triumph, only to die away once more to that moaning wail, seeming at last to lose itself in the mists. Slowly old Matt sank back into his seat, and the stranger heard him mutter, Poor boy, poor boy. Aunt Molly was weeping. Suddenly Sammy sprang from the steps, and running down the walk to the gate, sent a clear, piercing call over the valley. Oh, Pete! The group on the porch listened intently. Again the girl called, and yet again, Oh, Pete! But there was no answer. It's no use, honey, said Mrs. Matthews, breaking the silence. It just ain't no use. And the young girl came slowly back to the porch. End of chapters 2 and 3